So one of the things that I want to do over the next few weeks is to just to look at some of the cultural um, issues that are going on in the first century and just some of the key cultural elements of the Roman world and really just the, the world that the New Testament grew up in. Uh, these are really important for us to understand. And the reason is that when we read our Bibles, the, you know, right now in 2023 or, you know, whenever you're reading them, it's very easy for us to just assume that the world that we're reading in the New Testament is the same world of today. So we read it as a 21st century document and therefore we interpret it through whatever that lens is, whatever cultural background that we live in, we just assume that that's how the world is everywhere and how the world always has been. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that's so valuable about even just about traveling, um, you know, traveling overseas now is just exposing ourselves to different cultures and realizing that, oh, you know, the whole world isn't exactly like the world that I live in. Um, and just understanding that, you know, there's different ways of doing life in all the different places that we go. And so this is especially true when we look at the world 2000 years ago. Now, it should be an obvious thing to say that the world of the first century is different to the world of the 21st century. And I know that should be obvious, but the bigger question is how, in, in what way? Now, you know, common sense would tell us that it is, but again, unless unless you've actually been there, it's hard to sort of say how it was. Um, and so what that inevitably leads to is that this mistake of just reading our Bibles as though it was written today and more importantly, interpreting it in that way. And so just reading it as though it is a 21st century document. And naturally that's going to lead to all sorts of problems. Um, it's just, well, in some cases it could just lead to, you know, a, a misunderstanding of attitudes or, or things that have been said or actions that have been taken in the Bible. Um, you know, at its worst, it can lead to really bad misinterpretation and, and maybe even misapplication in that the way that we sort of read the Bible and, and try to apply it today, you know, it can lead to offense. It can lead to, well, how could Paul possibly say these kinds of things? Or how could Jesus possibly do that? Um, you know, because we wouldn't do that in the year 2023, or we wouldn't do that in the 21st century. Um, but again, it's, it's a total misreading of the Bible because it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written actually for us. Now, you know, you'll say, oh, but the Bible is timeless and there are timeless truths in scripture. And, and that's, that's true. There are. I mean, the script, the, the Bible is the timeless word of God, and it does have something to say to uh, to all times and to all cultures. And, and so that always remains true. But at the same time, it's also his, a historical book. It, it was written in a time, in, in a certain place, to a certain culture. And again, I mean, I always sort of use Paul as my example. He's sort of my the main focus of, of all of my research. Um, you know, but when he was writing to the Corinthians, for example, he wasn't writing thinking, well, somebody's going to be reading this in 2023 in, you know, a certain part of the world. So I better keep them in mind when I'm, I'm talking to them. He wasn't even thinking about us. When Paul was writing, he was just thinking, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I have this church that is on the brink of collapse. I need to fix this problem right now so that there is even a church in Corinth by the end of the year, um, much less by the end of the century. Uh, and so he's writing to deal with immediate problems. And so he's writing to a, a community and to a culture that um, is its own. He, he's Again, he's not writing to try to, uh, to, try to um, you know, deal with the or, or to uh, take into consideration uh, a 2,000-year-away culture that he's got absolutely no idea about. And so this is really just important for us to keep in mind because unless we have something of an understanding of how this world works and what type of world we're dealing with, we're going to misinterpret the scriptures. At the very best, we're going to misinterpret them. At the worst, we're going to misapply them. And we're going to look at some examples of this throughout over the next few weeks. And we're just going to sort of do a couple of different little series over the next few weeks, looking at some different areas, just some general cultural areas, and then show how the New Testament works within that. 
uh, look at the way that the New Testament um, certainly challenges that, um, but also how it interprets that and I guess just reimagines it within the Christian context. Um, and so today we're going to look at just in general the idea of, of how the society, how the Roman society of the first century ordered itself and really ask the question of, of where do the Christians fit within that? So you know, we, we sort of think, again, if, if you're from where I am in 2023 in Australia, um, you know, we live in a country that is relatively, for the most part, is a middle-class society where the majority of the population have relative affluence in the sense that we have some disposable income. Um, you know, we generally have three meals a day and we generally live in houses where we've mostly got enough bedrooms that everyone's got their own bedroom or, um, you know, we've got at least a car, maybe a couple of cars, you know, we've got computers, we've got a couple of TVs, like we, we live really, really well. Um, and so we sort of take for granted that this is just how life is, that we have this relative level of, of affluence, again, in the sense that all of our needs are met very easily and that we have an excess of pretty much most things, particularly with food and, and generally a bit of an excess of money and that we can just go and spend money on luxury items and trips and days out and, and these different things. Like most of us can probably relate to that to, to a varying degree. And so we just assume that that's how everybody lives and certainly that's how everybody lived before um, and that everybody sort of generally sits at about the same level in society, particularly within a more democratic society where we all just sort of take for granted that we're all um, kind of at the same level in, in, in the sense of um, in, a, in the sense of our status or even in, sort of certainly in the sense of our maybe our political rank, that, those sorts of things. So that's kind of where we we stand, but that's not the world of the first century. Um, the world of the first the world of the first century is very different to that, and particularly when we come to the Roman world, which is it's a very status conscious world. It's a world where you fit within a certain place within the social ladder, and that's very clearly demarcated. And how where you sit within the ladder will determine your privileges will determine the benefits that you have and it will determine you you know exactly who is above you you know exactly who's below you and you stay within that position there's no sense in which of climbing the social ladder that's just not really an option now it can be done but it's something that's really frowned upon because where you sit in the social ladder is where you were born into and, and that's where you belong and to change that is to really almost present a threat to the social structure you, you're actually not meant to climb that social rank you, you sort of stay where you belong so that's a really important element of the of the new testament world and it brings us to the question of where do we find the christians you know what what are the christians where do they fit within this particular structure. Um, you know, well, again, we think about Christians, say, in the 21st century in Australia, and we must think, well, they've always been and they always will be, you know, middle-class people that have relative affluence. And what we realize is very different. It's actually not the case at all. The Christians of the first century really are the most low-status people that, in most cases that you can find. Um, and, and that's one of the really standout features of Christianity. In fact, it was what, what, in fact, one of the things that made them so successful to begin with. So I want to look at that today and I want to come back to the, where the Christians fit uh, later on in this episode. But to get there, I want to begin with um, just a couple of key concepts for us to sort of get our heads around. And we'll look at them today, but also just some of these ideas that we'll carry through in the next few episodes of, well, what is going to be a couple of shorter series on, on the cultural backgrounds of the New Testament. Probably one of the sort of central um, cultural values, uh, I guess, of the Roman world. It's a couple of things. Number one, the Roman world is a, ro a world that is hyper-masculine. It, it is a very masculine world. It, it's a world that the top of the pile, the absolute centerpiece of Rome and, and, and the Roman ideal is the good man. It's the, it's the, it's the great man. And so that's sort of one idea that we'll sort of trace through. But the other key cultural, I guess, feature of 
the Roman world is that it's hyper-militaristic. Rome becomes the Roman Empire because of their military and their military is grounded in this idea of, of, of the man, of, of, the, 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 of the masculine man, the manly man. So these two ideas work hand in hand and these are the, these are the ideas or these are the values that create the Roman world and, and make it successful and, and make it stand for so long. And so it's protecting these ideas and it's embodying these ideas that make Rome what it is and that, and that is what it really means to be a Roman. Now, this can sort of be traced back to the origins of Rome. Now, the thing about the origin story of Rome is that it is mythology as are all of these sort of founding stories of these ancient cultures because they don't have records necessarily of how it really came about. Now, there might be sort of grains of truth, but they become mythologized in these in these ancient worlds. And it's sort of a sort of a looking back at their story and trying to add their own explanations as to how they came to be the way that they are. So the story of Rome is stems back to a pair of twins, um, two young boys by the name of Romulus and Remus. Now, you might have heard those names before. If you're a Harry Potter fan, you've, you've certainly heard those two names being used. Um, but the idea of these, so these two young boys, their mother was a woman by the name of Rhea Silvia. Now, she was the princess of an, a region called um, of, of Numitor. No, sorry, I'm getting my details wrong. Uh, sorry, Numitor was the king of a region called Alba Longa. And so Numitor is the father then of Rhea Silvia. And Numitor's throne had been usurped by his brother Amulius. And so Amulius, he, he takes the throne and doesn't kill Numitor, but rather exiles him, drives him out, and then kills his sons because any males are a, an obvious threat to the throne. So he kills all the sons. And, and rather than killing Rhea Silvia, he doesn't need to kill her because she's actually not a threat to him. Um, he just sort of pushes her to the side and effectively forces her to be a virgin. Um, she becomes a virgin and she's becomes, well, a vestal virgin. And so in Rome, one of the key uh, roles for priestesses was, was the vestal virgin. So these are the young girls who, who look after the fire of, of Rome. And so the vestal is the fireplace and this is the central um, idea or the central point in the Roman household where it's where you get your heat, your light, your energy from. So fire is very important and particularly for Rome itself. And so the Vestal Virgins are the ones who look after that. So she sort of becomes the sort of the originator of that. Well, anyway, so that's how the situation finds itself. But along the way, at some point, Rhea Silvia, she is uh, raped by the god Mars. And so you know, that's a pretty standard sort of thing that will happen. You know, gods will will rape people and the gods just, uh, as we've seen in previous episodes, the gods are absolutely horrific beings. Well, nevertheless, she's raped by the god Mars and so as a result of that is impregnated or becomes pregnant with the twins. Now, uh, Amulius finds out about this and so now that there's two boys on the scene who are the descendants of the king, now all of a sudden these boys are a threat. And so she drives away Rhea Silvia and then she uh, then he exiles the two boys. She, he basically uh, commands that they be left to, to die. They just be left to um, uh, just to, to their own devices to die. And so they're dumped by the Tiber River. Well, that all seems to have solved the situation, but then uh, along comes a shepherd who finds these two boys and, and raises them. Well, anyway, at some stage along their young journeys, they're, they're separated from, or actually initially, I'm sorry, I've, I'm going to get my details confused here. Uh, initially, they're actually found by a she-wolf and they're raised or they're initially suckled by this wolf until this farmer comes along. And so if you look at portraits of Romulus and Remus, there's one very famous one where they're two, they're portrayed as two young boys and they're literally just suckling um, at the teats of this, uh, at, at this, of this wolf. Well, anyway, so they're raised by this farmer and eventually as they grow older, they come to realise their actual origins, they actually come to realise who they are. And so they 
real, having realized that, they go back to Alba Longa and they overthrow um, uh, Amulius and then they reinstate their grandfather Numitor back to his throne. But realizing that they're not going to become kings of their region, of this particular place, they're, you know, they're, they're, that's still going to be a while before that happens, they decide that um, they're going to go and found their own city. And so they go down to the, the Palatine Hill, so the, sort of the, where the, the seven hills around what is now Rome, and they, they decide that this is the best place or the best region to establish their new city. Now, initially, there's an argument over which mountain is going to be the best, which hill is going to be the best. And this argument leads to a, an, um, to a fight. And as a result of this fight, Romulus kills Remus. And so Romulus is the last man standing. Now, is Romulus his actual name? Because the, the word Romulus literally means little Rome. And so the name Rome comes from that. Or was this um, that we are Rome and so our founder must have been called Rome and so we're going to call him Rome. It's, it's, it's impossible to say again. It's all sort of shrouded in mythology. But Romulus on, founds this hill on the Pal- this, this city on the Palatine Hill, which eventually becomes the city of Rome. So that's all good and well. Rome is now its own, well, it becomes a village as, as they all start off very small. But it doesn't have the thing that makes it a city, which is people. So what Romulus does is he sends word out to all of the surrounding regions and he says, you know, if there's any disenfranchised men, if there's any exiles, if there's any people that just don't fit in to where you are, come to Rome, come and start a new city with me. And so he starts to get all of these men coming in, all of these just the men that just don't fit in, all the men that are, are troublemakers in their own cities. And so they all start to become the initial um, founders of, of this new city of Rome. Now, that's all good and well. I mean, it's just a basically just a big, big boys party, all right? It's just a big, um, you know, just a men's club. And that's fine and that's all wonderful, at least for the first generation. But, of course, um, if there's going to be a second generation, we need women, we need wives um, in order to establish ourselves as a people group because we need to have kids so they call a big celebration to all of the surrounding regions and they um you know just say we're going to have a big celebration for the gods so you know come over to rome and we're going to we're going to have this party well the local region of of sabine they send a whole lot of their people over now what they don't realize is that the roman men have a plan and the plan is that on the signal of romulus they're going to kidnap all of the marriageable women that have come to this celebration and so they proceed to do this they have their their big party and so at at that signal they they kidnap all these women and then they proceed to rape them and as a result of that impregnate them and so therefore these women become their wives well as you could imagine this leads to war um, all of this, all of these regions, particularly the Sabine men, declare war on Rome, and so they go to war until eventually the women intercede and they they stand between their fathers and brothers and uncles who are fighting to defend their honor. And now, what are their husbands who are going to be the fathers of these children that they're all carrying? And so eventually, they they come to settle these terms of peace. And these women therefore become the wives. And so it becomes known as the rape of the Sabine woman. Um, now, it's a horrific story and you should be rightly disgusted by it because it is a disgusting story. So much so that even the Romans themselves are pretty embarrassed about this as being their origin story. But nevertheless, that's what we, we sort of find. So what we kind of get in the earliest, the, the first generation of Romans is that as a city founded by well, these two, well, ultimately by Romulus. Now, if you've made the connection, Mars, who is the father of Romulus, Mars is the god of war. And so the very god of war, his DNA is in Romulus. And so Romulus, by virtue of being the son of, the, the, literally the son of Mars, the son of the war god, is a naturally... Um, well, I guess warmongering type of person. Now, that wasn't unusual. I mean, the whole ancient world and, and the whole ancient Mediterranean world is one built on war. Uh, the whole 
I mean, the whole story of human history is just the story of kings going off to war. This is just what everybody does. So this is not unusual. But when your literal father or the or the founding god of your city is the god of war, that's going to kind of give you this heightened sense of being a warmongering type of people. But on top of that, you've got this sort of hyper-masculine origin of the, of the story itself. Now, having established this city for, with generations guaranteed ahead of it, the question then is how do you organise it? And so what he establishes amongst, out of his people are what becomes the Senate. So he, what he effectively does is he takes the best 100 men now, when we say the best 100 men, what we're talking about is the wealthiest ones, the landowning ones, and they become the fathers of Rome. So the, and it's, the Latin word is the word patea, and so it's from this that we get the idea of the patrician class. So the patricians are the best men. They're the wealthy landowners who become the political class, and then the rest of the people are the plebeians, where we get the word plebs from. So the, the, the everybody else, the common people are the plebs and the best men amongst them are the patricians. So the patricians are the Senate. They're, they're kind of his governing body. Well, fast forward a couple of hundred years and eventually Rome, Rome is ruled by kings for a long time, but then eventually the last king is overthrown. He, he's, really, he's, he's, he's really just a tyrant. Um, he's, he's a terrible king. And so the Roman... Senate decide that enough's enough of this king, we're going to get rid of him. And so having got rid of their king, they then reestablish Rome as a republic. And so the idea of the republic is that it's, uh, it's, run by, it's run by the people. It's run by, well, I mean, literally the word republic comes from the Latin res, publica. So the, the thing of the people, it, the res is really hard to translate, but it basically just means the thing of the people. So the thing of the people, this this res publica, is the new citizen. It's the new organizing body. It's the new ruling class. Uh, sorry, the, the new sort of political structure, and the Senate are the best men who have have that position ultimately through um, through birth. So these top families, these top 100 families become the original patrician families. And so the name itself, it's, it's sort of, you, you you are part of the patrician class by virtue of your birth. So they become the rulers and within the, uh, the, within the Senate, you, rather than having a King, the way that we guarantee that we're never going to have a King again, is that we, Instead, we're going to have consuls. We're going to have two men who are selected out of the Senate who for one year are going to rule. And they will be the they will make all of the, the key decisions for Rome. So these two consuls are selected every year. And then after a year, they both have to step down. And so what that does is it guarantees a couple of things. It creates this idea of checks and balances. In number one, it means that you don't have one person in control. You've got two and they can balance each other out. If one happens to be a particularly bad ruler, the other person can cancel them out. And even if they're both bad, they're both going to be gone in a year. So we only have to put up with them for a short period. So these two men are the best amongst the best. They're the, they're the cream of the crop. And so they become the rulers for that particular year. And they're so important, in fact, that the year itself gets named after them. So it's always going to be the year of, of these two particular men. So this is the Senate. This is how Rome is ultimately run. And again, it's, it's run by the best men, literally by the best men, because only men can hold these political positions. And these are the most important positions you can hold or, or achieve as a Roman. These are what you strive after. That's the top. And that's where you, you go in and make a name for yourself. That's really where uh, you demonstrate that you are truly the best man because as the best man, you've risen to the top of the pile. You've become the leader of Rome. So this idea, it's, it's both a practical political structure, but it also is inherent in it is the core of the ideal Roman. So the ide ideology of the great man, of, of the ideal man, and what the ideal man is, is based on is by his, um, his political capacity, but also by his military capacity. The way that you 
gain for yourself this reputation is through war. It's actually through being uh, a great soldier by serving Rome and by fighting for Rome and, and putting your life on the line for the Roman cause. So that becomes the the, the ideal. That becomes what beca- sort of valorized then as the ideal. So the, so at the core of it then, the point being that the core of or, or the the... the um, the centerpiece of what it means to be Roman is to be the ideal male. That's that's the that's the the great the greatest thing you can possibly be within this world. And in being that person, you are you're at the top. You are the best person amongst the Roman citizens. So that's sort of the broader idea. So what is this man? What is this this great man? that we're talking about. Well, we'll we'll look at him just now, just for a few minutes. So then the ideal that we're striving for is, is this great man, this good man. Now the Latin for this is via bonus or we are bonus V I R via man bonus God B O B O N U S good. So the good man, this, this is the ideal. This is what we're, we're ultimately striving to be. Now, of course, only half the population can do this because you need to be biologically male in order to become a good man. But this, as a man, this is what you want to be, to be re- recognized as, as this good man. Now the word for man, the Latin word for man is the word vir, V-I-R. Now it's where we get our word virtue from. So the word virtue in English, it derives from the Latin virtus and virtus, virtue, is inherently man, as in a biological man. And so to truly be virtuous, to have virtue, is to, you have to be a man. You have, virtue in and of itself is manliness. It, it is man, they're masculine qualities. And so then virtue is at its core, from, from its sort of its original idea, is the mask is what the Romans considered. And remember, this isn't me talking. Okay, just just before you cancel me, this isn't me saying that this is how meant to be true for all times and all places. This is I'm speaking from the perspective of the Romans here. This is how they saw the world to be. Okay, so just let's just make that clarification first. Uh, so the so virtue or virtus is inherently masculine qualities. So valor, courage, manliness. So to be valorous and courageous and manly and manly is to be virtuous. They're one and the same things. And so it's so hard to um, sort of, you know, we talk about virtues and we can define them as these things that should be transcend gender. But for the Romans, virtue in and of itself was being a man. Um, you know, it, it was to not be a woman. Now, it's true that women could have virtus. They could, they could have virtue in a sense, um, but the, the virtue for a woman was seen to be her modesty. It was seen to be her submissiveness. Now, we've talked already a bit about Roman wives and, and how this is sort of portrayed there. That's what they understood to be virtuous. And so for a woman, if you want to be virtuous, you need to be these things. And you, you would have examples of, of women who displayed virtue in the sense of courage and valor. And so in their actions, they displayed these characteristics of, and they acted in courageous ways in maybe fighting to, to physically defend their children or, um, you know, standing up to uh, enemies trying to destroy the family or the house. They could demonstrate virtue, but what they were demonstrating was what was perceived to be manly, manly characteristics. These, this idea of valor and courage can only really truly be exemplified by the Roman, uh, sorry, by the Roman man. And so that gets displayed through combat, that gets displayed through warfare and, and through fighting for Rome. So that, that is sort of traditionally how these, this idea of virtue was, was always understood. Later on, as sort of time goes on, it starts to incorporate uh, the more philosophical virtues. So the, the four cardinal virtues are justice, courage, temperance, and wisdom. And, and this is, these are particularly uh, taught or inherited through the teaching of Stoicism. So Stoicism, we'll talk about Stoicism at another time, but that becomes a very famous, very popular philosophical doctrine or philosophical school within the Roman world. So the ideas of 
of justice in the the idea of that um, that everybody gets what they deserve. Uh, that that's you know what whoever you are, irrespective of your status, you you should get what you deserve. That's the idea of justice. Courage uh, is is another. We've already seen sort of courage already, but courage as as a virtue. Courage as opposed to fear. Courage as opposed to um, you know just well, what is the great thing that holds us back as people the thing that stops that cripples us in our makes us it creates it causes us to be um to be inactive or to not act properly is fear and so courage whatever comes that temperance as opposed to a lack of self-control having self-control enables us to do the things that are right to, to do the things that are good and then wisdom uh, wisdom being not just knowledge but the the knowing what to do to, to having to knowing what the right thing to do is in a situation. So these four cardinal virtues are sort of added to the idea of the male, the man's idea of virtue. Um, but at the core of it, again, is literally via, it's being a man. The, tr- the, only, the only person who can truly be virtuous is the man. And so this virtuous man or this man is the person who is ideally suited to rule. Now, how do you then demonstrate that how, how do you uh, virtue is not something you're just born with it's not something you can just you know wake up and have you've got to develop it you've actually got to cultivate the virtues in your life so, so how do you do that well the, the traditional idea of the roman man the thing that um the, sort of the 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 traditional ideal that men should strive for is that the ideal roman man is a farmer so the original, and this is going back to an agrarian society where everybody is generally a farmer anyway, but the typical, the traditional idea is that the Roman man has his own plot of land and all Roman citizens have their own piece of land and on this land they farm, they create, they grow the food to supply for their, to support their families and they are ultimately the kings of their land. They're the kings of their own piece of property. They rule that land, they rule their households and they grow their food and they provide for their families and then they protect them as well. They are protectors of their families. They provide for them, but they also protect them. And, um, you know, if, if somebody attacks their land and if, if somebody attacks Rome, then the, it's, the, it's their obligation, it's their duty to take up arms and to fight for them. And, and it, it's a great honour for them to do that. And as well as that, the virtuous man, he's, he's pious to the gods, this is a, such an important characteristic in the ancient world. You respect the gods above all else. So these things are ultimately the, the core values of being a Roman man. But that's not necessarily virtue. Virtue is something that has to be demonstrated. Virtue is something you have to show in public. And so the way that you do that, there's two ways really that you can do this. The first way is in war. So you, you fight for Rome. You become a soldier for Rome. And again, this is true in Athens, as, as true as it is in, in Rome. You, one of the great honours you can have is to fight for your country and to ultimately die for your country if it comes to that, but you're always ready to fight. Now, when we think about armies today where you join the army and you're given all of your uniforms and all of your equipment, and so you then fight for, you know, you're ultimately you fight for your country. You fight for your country in these times, but you actually provide your own gear. Um, you have to buy your own sword, you have to buy your own w- whatever gear you can afford. And so for the poorest Roman men, you know, they might be able to afford a javelin, man, just a spear. That's about the best they can afford. And they've got no protective armour because they can't afford that. Now your wealthiest men, they have um, the best swords and shields and they have chain mail and more importantly, they have a horse. They, they, they become the cavalry. And so they're the cavalry, not because they're the best horse riders, but because they're the wealthiest men who can afford a horse in the first place. And so they actually create a class for themselves, an equestrian class, which is those that can literally afford a horse. And so then you've got everything in between that. And so the Roman army is uh, sort of ranked according to wealth. Now, you have to be a freeborn Roman citizen to even enlist in the army, to even have the opportunity to fight in the army. And so you then coming in fighting for them, it's really just a case of how much can you afford will determine the sort of equipment that you can have. But this is a great honour. You want to fight for Rome. That's where you make a name for yourself. That's where you demonstrate your valour and your, your manliness. You, do, you demonstrate your courage through warfare. And then having fought your war, fought, you know, fought in 
the battles that you fought in, whatever spoils you bring back, um, particularly of any enemy men that you've killed, you bring back their armor and you display it on your house. So you, you can look on the house of any Roman man and he's going to have displayed up there shields or any what of any sort of um, spoils that he's taken from the battle as trophies. The, these are assigned to everybody. Look how much of a man I am. Look at all these people that I've killed. Look at all the trophies from war that I used to decorate my house with. So every man does this. And this is it's not just true for the Romans. It's true for everybody. But for the Romans, this is where you demonstrate your your literally your manliness, your virtue, your courage, your uh, manliness, and and all of these things. So that's one way that you can demonstrate virtue. The second way that you can do this is by serving in public life. So you actually serve as a senator. Now, very few people can do this because to be a senator, you first of all, well, originally you needed to be amongst the patrician families. You actually needed to um, have family heritage going all the way back to the original founding fathers of Rome. Now, you know, just as a sidebar, Julius Caesar, for example, Julius Caesar w grew up in poverty. He actually grew up in the suburbs of Rome. He grew up really with nothing. But what he had going for him was the name Julius because the name Julius was one of the original f names of the original patrician class. And so that's that was his meal ticket. That was the thing. If he was going to get powerful again and, and restore um, the fortunes of the family, it was going to be through their name, which was, uh, which was the name Julius. So you can also serve in politics. And that's the other place in which you do that. Now, again, you, you have to originally have the name. Now that changes um, sort of around about the fourth century where they, the Roman constitution changes and allows for the plebs that, that can serve in the Senate. The plebs can also have access to those places of power. So you don't have to have the original name. Now that obviously creates a distinction straight away where the elite, the, the names like the Julius family are always going to see themselves as being better than these plebs because the plebs don't have these famous names. But nevertheless, they have now access to these places of power. But to do that, you still need to have wealth because to serve in politics, it's a voluntary thing. You have to actually have wealth and with wealth, like wealth coming from land in order to be able to serve in these positions. So this is another way. Now, you know, it's, it's a means to power. It's a means to uh, fame and the glory that comes along with that. But what it's ultimately seen as, this is my service to the Republic, to the Res Publica. This is how I, I, I've demonstrated it by taking up arms and defending it with, and, and putting my life on the line. But now I'm also putting my time and my, my, the, my, the rest of my life, my time and my wealth in the service of the Roman people by serving them through politics. Um, by by acting on on behalf of these of the people, so these are the two ways in which you demonstrate your virtus. You show your manliness through war or through through politics, and so the having entered into that, well, then naturally you want to you're aspiring to get to the top. Um, the it wasn't just about doing your piece of service. You needed to stand out above everybody else. The greatest soldiers are the generals. The greatest soldiers are the, the generals who call the shots, who ultimately get the, um, well, you can get the blame for a failed campaign, but you also get the glory for a successful campaign. So the soldiers that fight in the battle, no one remembers their names, but the, the names that are remembered are the great generals who led them. Now, in the same way in politics, you can serve in, in politics and you can be a no, a no name that does that, or you can be one of the consuls who's na who is literally has their name given to the year that you served. Now you're still all doing politics, but you're standing out above everybody else as the most virtuous because you did the greatest service, which was to serve as the consul for that year. You had the most important position. So it's not just about the serving, it's about being seen to be serving in the greatest capacity. Is not just about glory, which is what it's about. You're pursuing gloria, you're pursuing your own fame, but you're doing that in the service of Rome. And so you're doing the greatest service. So to pursue your own glory is to, is to pursue at the same time, the greatest service for Rome. So that's what makes you the most virtuous and only the most virtuous person can get that. But in return, you're seen to be the most virtuous person. And so as a result, you get the most glory, which only adds to your virtue. 
So the most virtuous person then is the person who pursues their own glory. The person who pursues their own reputation is the most virtuous person. And if this is all sounding like really, really backwards, that's because we in, well, if you if you're sort of certainly if you're in the 21st century West, we value this idea of humility. <laughs> we like the idea of humility, this idea that we, um, you know, that that we we sort of um, gain position through serving. You know, it's Jesus talks about the lowest being first and the the um, you know the last being first. That's a very Christian Western idea, and so we've come to value that. But this is the very opposite of that is what we find within the Roman world. And so this world that we're sort of coming to understand here is is this. This is the Roman world into which the gospel came. Now, I've probably given a little bit of a spoiler there as to what the Christians do with this, and I think you can see where this is going. But that's what we have to understand when it comes to understanding how the gospel works within this particular culture, within this particular place. So that's something of a background there. And I want to look then now, practically speaking, then as to how all of this plays out, certainly within the first century. Um, and, and then kind of from that, how does that work within, um, within the Gospels? Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which is really going to help to spread it further. And you might also enjoy the YouTube channel and all of the other social media related to the New Testament story. You can find the link for these in the show notes. And you might also consider supporting the, fi- the channel financially. You can do that through that same link. But anyway, back to the show. So the, the ancient world, and particularly the Roman world, is one in which it's all about climbing the ladder. That's how you demonstrate your virtue. You, you show your manliness, you show your worth by climbing to the top, by really just getting standing over everybody else. And so the most virtuous person then is the person that rises to the top. And so he's sort of like, it's glory seeking, it's, it's personal gain seeking, but at the same time, it's rewarded, it's seen as being, that's what makes you so great, is your pursuit to be the most famous, to be the most glorious person amongst your peers. Now, in the Roman idea, particularly in the political world, this is what we call the cursus honorum. So literally the course of honor. It's, it's the social ladder that you climb, it's the political ladder that you climb, and this is your way up to the top. Now, again, only a small select group of men can ever achieve this. They're, only they have the requisite virtue, which is that they are men to begin with. And then only the propertied classes have the opportunity to do this. Now, again, it's, you don't need to have had the great name that goes back to the foundations of Rome. You can be a new man. You can be somebody who doesn't have a famous family name, but you have the value in order to do this. And so that becomes then your starting point for entry into the Senate, for entry into political life. Now, the requirement then in order to gain this is that you need to be worth one million sesterces. So there's an, there's an actual property value or that's, that's, that's required in order for you to even have the opportunity to do this in the first place. So one million sesterces is the cutoff point. Now that means that, what that means is that that's how much land you own. It's not that you've got that much cash on hand in the bank, you know, because wealth in this time is in the land. It's an agrarian society. So the landowners are the ones that have all the wealth because they have the means to production, which is food. So they control literally the wealth. Um, you know, we think today as wealth in the sense of industry. And so the wealthiest people on the planet are not even at all landowners, they might only own a very proportionally very small piece of land, but they produce computers, they produce technology that um, is globally distributed that makes them billionaires. So it's a very different concept of, of how you gain wealth. But in a time before industry, before the Industrial Revolution, all the only potential you have to have that much uh, potential for wealth is, is if you own land. So you, you need to have a million sesterces then. Now to put that into, to give you a sense of how much that's worth, your average soldier by Paul's time earns about 900 sesterces per year. So 
calculate that. I can't even do the maths on the fly. But we're talking about a person whose minimal value is a lot, <laughs> is but compared to the normal person. And the soldiers, soldiers are pretty well paid. There, you know, that's a pretty sort of average income that you can get. A million sesterces then is clearly just more money than you could ever possibly comprehend. We're talking about the millionaires and billionaires of, of our current world. So you need to be worth that much. So you can then enter into politics. And so you are entering into the Senate. You become a senator through election. So this, so the, the picture then for the, the good man, we're talking about this via bonus, this good man. I mean, how do you become the good man? Well, you achieve that through military success. So you achieve that through military uh, service, but you also achieve it through education. And so the purpose of educating your boys in this time is to give them the requisite virtues to go into this public life. And so education is absolutely essential for progress up the cursus honorum. You need to have served in the military, and but you also and it, but then you also need to have the education that's required in order to do this. Um, and so when as a father, your responsibility for your sons is to give them the best possible starting point the best possible opportunities and if you're a wealthy man a wealthy father you're going to give your sons the best education and you're also going to position them in their military service with the generals because you're mates with all the generals because it's all sort of everyone's in each other's pockets so you set them up with the best generals they get to serve um, with these generals and you know um, and be able to claim that service but then also and, and have that patronage of having served with a great general but then at the same time you've got a great education which develops in you um, the, the military service develops the manliness and the courage but the education then develops in you the cardinal virtues the wisdom uh, the temperance, uh, the, the courage, the, the justice and those ideas. So you, you're being formed as a young man into the good man. And the good man, the via bonus, is the person who is the only person who can rule, who can, the only person who can enter into polit political life and become a leader because only this person is a fully formed person. So you know, a, a virtuous person is one who's been formed through this process and so therefore only a man can rule because only a man can achieve the very thing that's required, which is virtue, which is to be a man. So it's just sort of this whole cyclical thing. And so as a woman, it, well, you're not thinking about entering into any of this because you can't because you're not a man. Your virtue is to be at home, to be submissive, to be modest and to – work in the household which we've talked about in previous episodes so this is again this this is just how the world works this is how the society works and so you do as a young man you've done your education and then having done that you then do your military service so then you go and serve with a general you go and serve as what is known as a military tribune so you do about 10 years of military duty throughout your 20s and so you're working on the staff of a general in a campaign, or you might be a soldier, but generally you're going to be away from the battle because you're wealthy. You don't, you know, you don't need to fight to prove yourself. You just need to have served in the army. So you do about 10 years of military service. So you've done your education. You've been trained as an orator and a philosopher. You've done your military service. Then you return to Rome and now it's time to enter into into your public life to enter into politics this this is where you now come and you've demonstrated your virtue on the battlefield now you're going to demonstrate your virtue in public life so the first uh, uh position you hold you're you're elected into the senate you've got your millions of sturtius and you've inherited that from your family's wealth so you now you're ready to go you're getting married at this stage as well you know you've got your 13 or 14 year old wife because now it's time to marry and start having your children and so you enter into the senate and your first role is to become a quester q-u-a-e-s-t-o-r quester and the role of the quester is like what you were doing as a military tribune. You're, a, you're an administrator. You're a junior administrator at Rome. Um, you might serve uh, as a second in command to a governor in the provinces, but you're basically an underling. And you're, this is where you're really cutting your teeth on political life. You're learning what it means to do the administration of, of running the empire. So that's when you're, you're elected as a quester. And in doing that, you're now have become a senator. You've crossed that line and you've, you've formally become a senator and you're now a senator for life. You can't lose that as a title. The next step up from that is the adile. 
And so this is the director of public works. So you supervise public works. You pay for games, you pay for aqueducts, you pay for temples, whatever is required for um, the festivals, the games, whatever is required for the the general running of your city, that's what you're now responsible for. And you pay for that. That comes out of your own wealth. Again, you're a very wealthy person, so you can afford this. And that's the idea. The more generous you are, the more um, famous you become in your service as the Adyal. And then that's what's going to help you advance to the next level. Now, there are age brackets. You have to be a certain age to um, achieve the next rank, to be elected into the next rank. And it comes through election, but you're having been elected into this role, you've gone up a rank. You've gone up a, a rank into the next level. After this is the praetor. So you actually act now as a judge. You serve on the courts. And so you demonstrate now your education, which has been in law, which has been in oratory. And so now you serve as a judge. And so this is where Again, you make a name for yourself as a lawyer, as a judge, you sit on the most prestigious courts and that's where you become very famous. So you, people start to know you personally. You're not just an everyday senator, you're that particular person. And so they know you now as this particular person. And then your final climb, the next rank up is the consul. You've now become a leader of Rome. And so only a very few people can do this. It's kind of like in any parliamentary system where you can become you can be just a politician like everybody else, or you can become the prime minister or the president. Well, only a few people can do that. And only the most, the people with the best name recognition are going to get that sort of role. But having become that, you're, you go down in, in history as being known because you've held this position that everybody's looking to. So this is the cursus honorum. This is the, and we can maybe unpack this in more detail in the coming weeks, but this is what you're trying to climb up. This is what's getting you to the top. You want to become a senator um, as, and become the most elite person. Now, out in, the, um, out in the provinces, you get your own equivalents, places like Corinth. They have their own equivalent to this. Um, and so the top of the pile in a place like Corinth is the decurion. So you've only got to be worth 100,000 sesterces to be a decurion, but it's the same sort of process. Every city, every region has its own version of this cursus honorum, which is you again trying to climb to the top. You demonstrate in your virtue through this. Now, what has this got to do with the New Testament? Well, let me just draw out one passage to give you a sense of, of how this plays into our New Testament world and, and what the Gospels do with this. And then over the coming weeks, we'll just sort of unpack this in some more detail as we go along. Perhaps one of the, the most well-known passages, I mean, they're all pretty well-known, I guess, but one of my favorites, I suppose, is Philippians 2.5. And I'll read the whole passage out and then we'll sort of place it back into the context then of what we've been talking about. So Philippians 2.5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the whole Roman world is the idea of demonstrating your virtue by climbing to the top and being seen to be the best man and, and you know, biologically a man. That only the man can be the best in the society because virtue is to be a man in and of itself and that's to climb to the top. The antithesis to that is humility. True virtue is pursuing your own glory, not just glory in general, but your own glory, your own fame. The, the, the Greek word is the word doxa. So when we translate that as glory, it's also translated as fame and honor. It's all the same thing. So you want to be the worshipped ultimately you want to be famous you want statues made of you you want to everybody to sing your praises almost literally you want to be seen as the best and, and basically worshipped in that way and you do that again by climbing to the top by climbing up this cursus honorum and that man that is the best man you're there because you're the best man and you having got there are the best man so again it's all as everything that we've just seen here 
So Paul says to the, to the Philippians, hey, guys, um, when it comes to our communities, here's how we're going to approach it. Uh, we're going to approach it the same way that Jesus did. See, Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Now, you can be the top of the Roman Senate, but you're still not even a, you're still a man. You're not a god. And even the emperor is still a man. He's not fully a god. He's still half a god, but he's also a man. There are the gods above them, but they're not men. Well, see, our God is the only God, and even if there are other gods, our God's bigger than all of those gods, and that was Jesus. He already was the best of the best. He was far above everything in existence. That's where he stood. He didn't need to climb the ladder. That's He was already there. He was the best, and yet his response was to come down to us. He didn't say, be good enough, and come up to me, and if you are good enough, you can get to me. And so, you know, therefore you can be the best. No, no, he came down to us. He became a man. He humbled himself. I mean, that word humility, I might have said this before, I've had, and I'll say it again. The word humility, these Roman men, these virtuous Roman men, the greatest insult you could ever give them is to call them humble because humble is to be a slave. Humility is a foul word. You don't call a good man humble. That's what you call a slave. And so Jesus says, or Paul says, Jesus humbled himself. In fact, the word humility, the very first time in all of the all the writings of the ancient world, the very first time that the word humility is ever used as a positive to describe somebody is in the Gospels. And so we take that for granted in our Western culture, which is based on the Christian virtue of humility, we, we, we hold that as being a virtue. But for the Romans, it was something of disgust. It was the thing you were trying to avoid being known as was being humble. So Paul says, when you're relating to one another, and particularly in leadership roles, do the thing Jesus did, which was to humble himself. And so it says he came down to our level. Now, it's interesting. Jesus didn't come down and become a senator because if he was, then he could only reach the senator's. He didn't come down to even the level of a free person who wasn't, um, who, who wasn't a senator because then he could only reach a smaller demographic. He didn't come down to ex-slaves, and we'll talk about some of the other different ranks later next week. He, he said he came down and he took the form of a slave. Now, even amongst slaves, you could have you know, slaves that were quite um, you know honored that were the slaves that were quite um uh, of have sort of high positions but the lowest form of a slave is the crucified slave because the cru- crucifixion is only for slaves and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks but the lowest of the low of the possible lowest possible person on the planet is a crucified slave there is nobody lower than that because a crucified slave isn't even human they've been stripped of their humanity in, in being crucified. And so the absolute bottom of the scum of the barrel at the very bottom of the barrel, that's where you're going to find a crucified slave. And so Paul says, Jesus came down. He didn't stop at the senators. He didn't stop at the wealthy freeborn. He didn't sl- stop at ex-slaves. He didn't even stop at slaves. He came down to the level of the crucified slave. Now, why did he do that? Well, because Jesus's goal was to lift up all of humanity. And you can't just pull humanity up from standing in your position of superiority above them. You actually have to get down and lift them up from below. And so Jesus came to the very bottom, to the very lowest points of human existence and lifted us up from there. And it says then, because of that, God glorified him. Through that action, God glorified him and gave him the name above all names, that every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul says, if you want glory in this Christian community, that's what you have to do. If, if you want a position of leadership in this community, that's what you have to do. If, if, if serving somebody else is beneath you, then, well, you're not a Christian because Jesus' model is that that's actually exactly how you serve. You, you go down to the very bottom and you serve the lowest of the low. That's the leadership in this particular community. And so Paul says, if you want to be great in this Christian community, that's where it starts.
that's where it begins. And that's the model that Jesus has established for us. Well, that's just something of a starting point then of where we're going to be going over the next few weeks. And I really want to just sort of unpack how all of this starts to play out into the New Testament in in all forms of ancient life. Um, So hopefully that's been helpful, but uh, otherwise have a great week. Join me next week and we will continue on this story. And particularly next week, just look at where we find some of our Christians within uh, this particular um, aspect of, of Roman life. Where, where do the Christians really sit within this, these areas of, of these formal ranks? So join me for that and I'll see you next week.